Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for your provision to this church. Um, and even as we talk about money and are seeing the amazing encouragement that you have given us, um, the riches that you have lavished on us in the gospel are of far more value. And so, Lord, today as we look at a text that deals with that infinite value and infinite beauty, may we come to understand that which is ours in Christ in the same way we can easily understand in our world gifts of monetary value. And we know that you are able to do this in our hearts because to a degree you already have and to a degree that we will know one day in full you have promised to do eternally. So we give you our ears and our hearts today as we look at your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. The poet Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that you become what you think about all day long. You become what you think about all day long. For instance, I'm somebody who's gone hunting far more times than I've gone to an NFL football game, but I don't consider myself a hunter. Why? Because it doesn't occupy my mind or occupy my heart or even occupy my finances like being a football fan does. You see, Emerson rightly identified a connection between what occupies our mind and the actions of our life. In other words, whatever it is that our mind is preoccupied in thinking about, it has an indelible and influential impact on the occupation of our time and our talents and our treasures here on earth. The problem is, is if we step back and we look at human history, humanity has no lack of obsession. There is always something that demands our affection, that demands our thought and captivates our mind, and yet it doesn't appear that despite the eras of history and despite the amount of things that demand our mind and our thoughts, the objects of our affection don't seem to be able to make us into the people or into the society that we would like to be. And it's out of that tension that Paul actually wrote the book of Ephesians a book which holds out the promise of better individuals and better societies all because they have the occupation of a better affection. And today we're starting a series which will take us through most of the summer uh, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was a letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, which we actually met the last two weeks in the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy. Paul knew the church in Ephesus well. He helped start it. He spent much time there in Ephesus, which means he also knew what this church needed. He knew the specific way in which this church and the churches surrounding it culturally would need the gospel encouragement in their life. Ephesus was on the western coast of what is now Turkey, and it was the gateway to Asia. And so because of that, it was this economic trade capital of the region. Ephesus was also the center of religious activity. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the world was there during the time of Paul, the temple of Diana. And so it was the religious center of all of Asia as well. And in addition to that, it had just had completed around the writing of this letter a stadium roughly the size of Washington Grizzly Stadium that demanded the attention of anyone seeking sports, entertainment, or pleasure. And in the middle of all of these distractions and all of these um, uh, commotions was a small startup church that was struggling to understand 
its nature and its purpose. And so Paul wrote this letter trying to provide for the church its identity, who it is, what it is, and what it should do. And maybe you're a Christian in here today, and maybe you're not a Christian. We love that the church brings both of those people together. And you've thought, why am I doing this? Why do Christians go to church? Why do they gather as they gather? We know that we are not saved by church attendance. Going to church does not save you. And yet, Christians across the globe throughout history have come and gathered every Sunday on the Lord's Day and don't seem to be interested in stopping. Why is it that this gathering demands us to consider our weekend plans, our priorities, and our schedules, and fights for supremacy inside of all of that? And this is where Paul's point in this book is deeply connected to what Emerson wishes could be true with the own occupation of his mind. And that's that Paul is saying that the church is a society where believers become what they behold. They become what they behold, and as that change begins to happen in them, in every area of their life, they begin to reap the wonderful fruit of that trans- transformation. That they begin to see the benefits that we all hope we would have from the object which occupies our mind. And this series is called Beautiful Occupation because it's book, the book is split almost perfectly in two. With chapters one through three, Paul calling us to examine the beautiful occupation of the gospel how the church should be preoccupied with gazing at and understanding how the gospel forms the church. And then in chapters 4 through 6, in the second part, Paul says, if you are occupied with the beauty of the gospel, this is the natural occupation, the work of the church that should happen in the rest of your life. What it looks like to be the church, what it looks like to be a husband and a wife and a parent and a child and an employee and all of those things is saying all of that is driven by what we behold in the gospel. And today, as we look at Paul's introduction, we're going to look at four things. The first thing we're going to look at is we are going to look at how God has blessed us and where he has blessed us. And then we are going to look at three ways, three reasons that we as Christians should try to understand and become preoccupied with the way in which God has blessed us. So where God has blessed us, and then we want to look at three ways in which these blessings should occupy our minds. And so this is what we're going to see today. These are the four points. Is we're going to see first, to know God is to know Christ. In Christ, we are redeemed. In Christ, we are chosen. And in Christ, we are sealed. So those are the four things we're going to look at today. They'll be on the screen later, so don't break your handwriting fast right now. I don't, you don't break your handwriting fast. Just Let's read together. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, which Johnny just read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
So have you ever been part of a conversation where you enter into that conversation and it feels like the person you're talking to is like four steps ahead of the conversation and you don't really understand what it is they're saying, you feel like you've just been carried away with their argument? That's exactly what's going on here in the beginning of this letter. Paul opens with this casual greeting, what's up Ephesus, good to see you, and then he launches immediately into the throes of this deep worship. He pulls us into this writing, which is in a sense a divine eulogy, this this Greek word for blessing, this divine eulogy, rich with doxology, a word that the church uses, which is to just give glory to God. It is deeply worship-filled, deeply glorifying, deeply focusing on the way that God has blessed us as his people. If this book were a pool, verses 1 and 2 are the ladder or the steps that bring us in, and then what follows is just the Mariana Trench. There's no shallow zone to the beginning of this book. You just fall off into the depths of the glory of God. And the verses we just read and the verses we're going to look at as we continue today are some of the most dense theological verses in all of Scripture. And I should warn you that when we encounter language and writing and teaching this beautiful and this dense, we can be prone to error in two ways. The first error is that we would look at what Paul is writing and we would become so fascinated with the implications of this in our theology that we would drive ourselves to study things like election, predestination, adoption, atonement, um, sovereignty, and we would read and we would study and we would look, but it would actually keep us from the goal of this text, which is worship. The other side is to look at this and see Paul not using any periods at all and using words that might be hard to pronounce, and we say, I don't need any of this. I don't need to understand what's going on in this text. But that, too, actually falls into the very same error as the first camp. It neglects to understand the end of this text, which is to lead us to worship God. Because the point of this passage is that you, the reader, if you are a believer, you would praise God. We saw that in verse 6. He says himself that, that he is writing so that it might be to the praise of God's glorious grace. And this theme is all over this passage. We see it in verse 6. Also look at verse 12 where Paul says this, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his, that is God the Father's, glory. Verse 14, who is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his, that's God the Father's, glory. Paul is writing this book immediately for the sake of the believers in Ephesus praising the glory of God. So, where do you go when you want to worship? I want you to think about that question for a second. Where do you go when you want to praise the glory of God? And what does that look like for you? Hindus go to a temple and it's there that they worship. Muslims go to Mecca and even when they can't, they orient their prayers geographically pointing towards Mecca. Missoulians, when they want to worship, they go to the mountains. And what's interesting is all people, religious or not, generally wrap their worship around a location, around a place. But in the New Testament, 
we see the uniqueness of Christianity. That God has not called believers to a place of worship, but instead to a person of worship. The church is certainly a place. We want a place. That's why we're asking for a building fund, is we want a place. But it's not the place that makes it special. It's the person who the gathering of believers are focusing on that makes the place special. Jesus is what makes it special. And this is our first point today, and that's to know God is to know Christ. To know God is to know Christ. If you want to know God, if you want your heart to be stirred about who God is and the glory of his grace, we have to look to Jesus Christ. Last week was Mother's Day. I looked on social media, and most of you, rightly so, went on social media and began to pay homage to your moms. And it was cool to see, but one thing I did not see in all of our words poured out to our mother is someone with a post that said this, Dear Mom, you birthed me. Thank you. Now, is that true? Yes. Is it an accurate description of what happened? Yes. Is it deeply good news for you as an individual? Yes. So why is it that we see so few cards that just say, thanks for labor, have a nice day? Because while true, while accurate, while good... It fails to account for the relationship that makes that truth all the more beautiful. Because that's what we talk about when we talk about our moms, right? We talk about their kindness, their generosity, their gentleness, and their affection. But how many of us have that kind of understanding when it comes to God, who is our Father? God, who in this text is adopting us through Jesus Christ. For most of us, The description of our affection for God begins and ends with, you saved me. And that's where it stops. And we think that's sufficient. But do you know what went into that? Do you know the relational depth that brings warmth and energy and love into that truth? Can you really see in clarity where it was and how it was that this God loved you? If someone came up to you and asked you, why do you love your mom? You might say, because she gave you life. But if you have any sincerity in your heart, you would then go on to talk about where you see that sincerity, what it looks like, how you experienced it. Then why is it that our description of God's glory often stops at the admission of he saved me and goes no further to mind the beauty of that relationship? You see, behind the depth of theology in this text that Paul is writing is the simple truth that if we want to see God as glorious, if we want to take seriously the call to praise the glory of God, then we must see where God has placed his glory. We must see where God has given his love. We must see where God has promised to meet us relationally. And I want to read part of this passage again, and I want you to listen to the language he is using of where is it that we find the glory, the worship, and the relationship of God. And this is verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the goal of this passage is white-hot worship for God. But the point of access to that worship is repeatedly Jesus Christ. In other words, if we want to know who God is, and if we want to know specifically what God has done for us, we must know what he has done for us in Jesus. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that is the gateway of worship to God. If you try to worship God without Jesus Christ, you're going to miss the mark. You can perhaps conjure up enough emotion to worship something, but it's not the God of the Bible. He has placed as a gateway to his relational love his son, Jesus Christ. The Greek preposition for the word in is used 10 times in these 14 verses to describe specifically what is ours in Christ. And so what we see in here is verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, God chose us in Christ. Verse 6, God blessed us in the beloved, that is Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption. Verse 9, the purpose of God is set forth in Christ. Verse 10, God is going to unite all things in Christ. Verse 11, in Christ we have an inheritance. Verse 12, we hope in Christ. Verse 13, in Christ we have heard the word. Verse 13, in Christ you believed and were sealed. What might we think the main point of this text is? See, all of us have been caught up in fads, haven't we? How many of you have had shoulder pads in your clothes. How many of you still do, Shelly Cooley? How many, of you, how many of you have had Tamagotchis hanging from your backpacks at school? We're out on the interstate playing Pokemon Go on your phones. Wore saggy pants, bought a Motorola Razor. We know that there are things that can so occupy our finances, our affection, and our lives, which three, five, ten years later we look back and see it as nothing but silliness. But here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is pulling back the veil, looking into eternity past and gazing into eternity future at the one beautiful occupation which has never faded and will never lose its luster. You see, for the past 2,000 years, the church in her truest form has been preoccupied with the fullest of God's revelation in the man, Jesus Christ, her Savior. And at times, various sects of Christianity have attempted to find a center of Christianity, which is not Jesus. And much to their surprise, they do not progress Christianity, but instead they end up as some footnote in a history book. But Jesus, his value, his worth, and his centrality is the stunning center of life itself. Paul wants this church to know, Paul wants you to know the infinite beauty, blessing, and glory of God, which is seen only and exclusively in seeing what Jesus has done for us, for our good and for the worship of God. And this is now what Paul begins to turn to in his introduction. He wants us to know what it is we have in Christ, and so Paul spends the rest of his time telling us three main things we have in Christ which lead to our worship of God. And so the first point we see here is describing what is in Christ is this, is that in Christ we have been redeemed. In Christ we are redeemed. Read with me beginning in verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan to unite for the fullness of, or as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Earlier, when Paul opens this text, he highlights God's love for us by using this idea of adoption. The adoption we have specifically through Jesus Christ. God loved us, and because God loved us, he chose to bring us into his family through Jesus Christ. We have a church that likes foster care, a church that's growing in its passion for adoption. And if you've ever done foster care or adoption, you know how costly that process could be. Sometimes the cost is financial, sometimes the cost is emotional, and sometimes the cost seems like it's just about everywhere. So too was the cost of God bringing you into his family. And here Paul describes the cost. What does it cost for God to win you as sons and daughters? It costs the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And here Paul begins to break down the experience of that redemption. He makes three things clear. Our redemption was costly. Our redemption was extravagant. And our redemption is organizing. Our redemption was costly, our redemption was extravagant, and our redemption was organizing. Our redemption was costly because our problem was costly. The problem we all have in life isn't that we just have a bummer life. It's not that we're missing out on our best life now. It's not that we don't have any plan or purpose, and if we could just find that, that'd be great. Or your problem isn't even just that you don't have eternal life when you die. Those things are costly, but they're not as costly as the Bible describes our condition to truly be. Our problem, each and every one of us, is that we are sinful, that we have rejected God, that we have worshipped others, and that we are eternally separated from his infinite goodness. That was the problem, that because of this, we earned God's just condemnation. And not only did our sins separate us from God, but we incurred the punishment death. And this is where that word redemption is important, because it carries with it an economic or a monetary value. In the Greco-Roman culture this was written to, this is the word that was used to redeem slaves. And so if there was a slave, you could pay a price, and you could redeem that slave by your price, and you, could ha- you, you, you free that slave from whatever it was that they were in bondage to. And this is what Jesus did for us. He redeemed us from slaves to sin, and he made us slaves to him in the best and truest way. This is the cost that was seen in Hebrews 9, verse 22, where the author of Hebrews says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The price for our sins, the price for our redemption, the price for our freedom was the blood of Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is that despite this infinite cost, the cost of his own son, God's grace was more than enough to save us. It was costly for him to redeem us, but his grace is extravagant in his redemption of us. Do you see that language in verses 7 through 8? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. God has lavished grace upon you. If you've ever been around or have toddlers, you understand what it means to be lavished. Because they take their little cup and they think that they could pour it on their own. 
It's small. It's a little amount. They can manage it, and they take the jug of milk, and they begin to tip, and pretty soon, all of the milk, that cup is so overflowing with milk. It has been lavished thoroughly, much to our chagrin. But this is the experience we have with God in our salvation. Despite how infinite that void was between us and God, despite how seemingly small and insignificant our personal life might be in the grand scope of things, God has lavished his mercy upon us. The richness of God's grace in Jesus overflows to us. God's grace is extravagant. And we try to make, as we try to make headway in being a healthy church, we are going to become more aware of sins we have in our heart. And this is going to be difficult because we see places where we're not yet what Christ is. What Paul is saying is the church that beholds Christ is a church that becomes more like Christ. And so if we want to become more like Christ, it means we have to encounter places where we're not like Christ. And so there'll be times where as we're growing in faith, we become more aware of the sins that are in our heart. And when that happens, Satan is going to lie to you and he's going to come to you and he's going to say, isn't that gross? Don't let anyone know. You've been a Christian for 10 years and you're still struggling with this sin. It's best to just leave it unaddressed so that they think you're a Christian. Keep it secret. Keep it hidden. It's best to just deal with it on your own. But doesn't God's extravagant grace call out to us in that tension? That the more we become aware of our sin, the more we become aware of God's infinite and unending grace. And it's only because God's grace is richly lavished upon us that we can go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and we can say, I am weak, I am struggling, and I have a problem. And they, because they have been saved by the same gospel, get the privilege, do not deny each other this privilege of taking you to this well and saying, drink richly, for God has lavished you with grace. That there is infinite hope in the riches of his mercy to deal with whatever it is that you are going through. Jesus' redemption is extravagant and it organizes the whole of our life. Did you see that in verses 8 through 10? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan to fulfill, or as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You want to know the mind of God? Here it is. You want to know God's plan, not only for your life, but for the world. Here it is. Our salvation, our being richly lavished by God's grace, allows us to make sense of everything we experience in our life, make sense of our hopes and make sense of our fears, because the whole of eternity past and the whole of eternity future is that God would unite all things in Christ through faith and one day in the new heavens and in the new earth for all eternity. That we would be wed to God through Jesus Christ, through faith. This is the next point that Paul makes is that in Christ we have been chosen. In Christ we have been chosen. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
Now, depending upon your translation, the two main Bible translations that are probably you guys have right now are the ESV and the NIV. Now, you'll notice there's a little bit of difference. The ESV says what we just read, that in him you have obtained an inheritance. The NIV translates a little differently and says, in him you were also chosen. And this is because the Greek word rendered as obtaining an inheritance or being chosen is a word that just means to obtain or to appoint. And Paul's grammar is vague enough here that we're unsure if he's talking to what we obtain as believers or what God obtains, being that God has obtained believers. But either way, we know what he's talking about, because Paul is saying that God's doing the choosing. God chose to have us, and he chose that we would have him. He chose us for him, and he chose him for us. He predestined us according to his will. And at the heart of us possessing God and of God possessing us is God working the will and plan of God according to his will, before time even began. This is a rearticulation of what we already saw in verses 4 through 5. Look back in verses 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God chose us according to his will, in Christ, to be adopted through Jesus Christ. God was the first and primary cause in all of our salvations. And because of that, we often bristle at this doctrine because it's big on God and little on man. Man is made much of not because of his power, but because he is an object of God's love. And so often we inflate power to love. But in Scripture, it is exactly in being loved by the object of great power that we have the contentment we want in every sphere of life. And so we sometimes wrestle with this idea of God's electing, God's predestining, God's choosing love. And if that's you, that's, that's okay. Because in this book, Paul is going to continue to come back to this because he knows a church that's distracted and disoriented needs to be constantly reminded of this truth. And so this is something that will be fleshed out more as we walk through this book. But what Paul's writing here is he's not writing a treatise on election. He's not writing so that we would simply understand the way in which God saved us. He is writing so that as we understand how God saved us, it would lead us to worship him. And in this are two soul-stirring truths that Paul is bringing out for us right here in this doctrine of Christ's choosing love. God's electing and choosing will means two things. That God knew you and that God knows you. God's electing and choosing love means that God knew you and that God knows you. If you've ever been on a date, you've ever been on an interview, you, do you go on interviews, in an interview? Prepositions matter. Paul used them. I'm not using them as well. If you've ever been on a date or in an interview, you know what it's like to present a specific portrait of yourself. You know what it's like to be worried about meeting and appearance. When Sarah and I dated, I acted like I liked country music because that's what girls like. And so I acted like I enjoyed it and it became so burdensome and so wearing and so entrapping to me that eventually we had to come to grips with the fact that I just don't like it, but I really like you. Can this go on, please? <laughs> and here we are by God's grace. But don't we often do that with God too? That we know there's a way we are supposed to look, a way we're supposed to act, a way we're supposed to talk, an image we're supposed to present. And if we fail to present that, then we fail to belong, we fail to be loved, we fail to be accepted, we fail to find peace. 
We try so hard to present a specific purpose or a specific per- picture of ourselves to God and to others, and we could do it really well. The problem is, is that we know it's not the good life. We know that we become burdened and we can often view our walk with God as if we're walking on eggshells wherever we are, hoping to just look like someone who follows Jesus. And the space where you can be truly who you are becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until there's some deep, deep, dark corner of your apartment or of your house where in that room, in that place, you could actually be who you feel free to be. And this is why the allure of hypocrisy is so strong in our hearts when everyone hates hypocrites. But when God chose you in Jesus, when he predestined you before the foundations of the world according to his will that we should hope in him, it means that God saw the rawness of who you were. He knew you. Look what God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You don't need to hide your sins from Jesus, because he already saw the worst of them. He saw you not only when you were unlovely, but when for all true purposes, when it comes to you and a holy God, not only were you unlovely, but you were actually unlovable. But he chose to love you. He chose to place his favor upon you. He chose through the veil of history to choose you in Christ God didn't love who you pretended to be. God didn't love who you presented yourself to be. He really loved you. Sin, warts, and all. Because when he saw you, when he chose you, when he loved you, he loved you in light of what his perfect holy son was going to do. That's what Paul means when he says that he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Jesus makes all the difference when it comes to how we relate with God. It is Jesus and only Jesus that changes our relationship with him. God's choosing love for us in Jesus reminds us that not only did God know us when we were at our worst, but God's choosing love for us in Jesus also reminds us that God sees us at our best. God doesn't just choose sinful people and leave them in their sin. God does not lower his standard to be like, ah, schmobuddy's perfect. But instead... Through the wonderful power of Jesus Christ, God acknowledges our sin, but then he looks forward to see the wonderful change that Jesus will bring those whom God has chosen to love. He loves sinful people, and he changes them. This is what Paul says. Look back at verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever been stuck in a rut? Stuck in a place where you have specific, besetting, secret sins that you just can't seem to shake? This is a beautiful reminder of the hope we have in Christ. 
God, through the veil of history before the foundations of the world, not only knew you in your brokenness, but he chose to see you as you will one day be before him, holy and blameless. God saw the change that Jesus was going to bring to you. That's a powerful love, isn't it? That's a love that can actually do something. That's a love that's worth glorifying. That's a love to get excited about. I love my kids. I would lay down my life for my wife, but I certainly have not seen them at their worst. I do not know what their heart mutters towards me at specific areas in their life. And despite my extreme love for them, my love can't change them. My love won't make my kids sin less. My love can't even make my, li- my wife like mayonnaise. But Jesus' love for us chose us at our worst and predestined us by his power to one day be our best. This wonderful and blessed hope is that you, wherever you are, whatever those besetting sins are, however slow and impossible it might seem to make progress in your growth towards Jesus, God's electing love for us promises that Jesus can, will, and is changing you. That he is not leaving you up to your own power to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but that Jesus is bearing his new changing power inside of you to be who you could never be apart from him. He changed you because God knew who you were and knows who one day you will be in Christ, holy and blameless before him. And in spite of all this, Paul hits us with his reprieve again in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why has God chosen you? Why is God granting you an inheritance? Why is God choosing to cleanse you and to purify you in Christ to the praise of his grace? Not to the praise of our own might, not to the praise of our own brain or bronze, not to the praise of us being able to understand God's electing love, but to the praise of his glory. If any theology should leave us with a humble limp and a keen affection of God's love for us, it is this, that we would praise the glory of God who unconditionally chose to love us in Christ and change us to who we could never be apart from him. What hope there is for us in a God who loves like this. And lastly, we see this, that in Christ we have been sealed. In Christ we've been redeemed, in Christ we've been chosen, and in Christ we've been sealed in verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here just in the first 14 verses of Ephesians, we see God the Father, we see God the Son, and now we're introduced to God the Holy Spirit. The entire efforts of the divine Godhead are coming to bear, promising blessing after blessing to those who by faith believe. See, in our world, I just went online today and looked. There are original pieces of artwork by Van Gogh that sell for $60 million. One sold of Picasso for $94 million. We pay huge sums of money to possess original artwork by famous artists. And in our salvation, we have the original artwork of God himself lavished richly on us in Jesus Christ. 
There is nothing more valuable than what God brings to bear in our souls through the gospel. And here Paul shows the enduring value of such a gift, but he makes a really important distinction before he moves on. And that distinction is is that there's a difference between hearing the gospel and believing in the gospel. Did you see that in verse 13? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Lots of people have heard the gospel. But hearing the gospel does not equal believing the gospel. Believing the gospel is your response to God's election. Believing the gospel is your heart seeing, not only hearing, but understanding what stood against you in your sin, seeing what Christ has done, and saying, that's the redemption I need. That's the Savior that needs to occupy my mind. That is the only hope in life and death that I am not my own, but belong to this Jesus. Believing is more than ideological. It's relational. We see that in the language that Paul is using here, right? Paul is calling us to look at that which is in Christ. And again, I made jokes about my prepositions earlier, but that preposition in is really important. He's not calling us to look at Christ. He's calling us to look at what is in Christ. It's easy to look at Christ. It costs us relatively nothing to look at Christ. I look at people all day. And I can learn a little bit about them. I can observe what they like to eat or where they shop. Sounds like I'm a creeper. But I can, I can learn a lot by watching people. But if I actually want to know what is in them, I have to have a relationship with them. And they, to a degree, have to have a relationship with me. You see, belief in Jesus Christ is the relational knowledge of knowing and being known by Jesus in a way which can only be described as divine grace. We are saved not by hearing the gospel, but by believing in it. We are blessed not by looking at Christ, but by faith seeing what is in Christ. And so my question, if you're in here today, is have you done that? Has your life been a false confidence in hearing the gospel and looking at Christ? Or have you known and are you being known by Jesus in a way where your soul sees what he has done? And he says, that was for me. Jesus and only Jesus is my creed. Because the truth is, is you can look at Christ and you can hear the gospel, but there's no blessing promised for those people. We might be able to white-knuckle our way through the walk of Christianity. We might be able to tread carefully on eggshells through this life. But there will be no joy, there will be no relief, and there will be no worship. But for those who believe and those who are able with the eyes of faith to look in, we experience every blessing in the heavenly places by the grace that was lavished on us in Jesus Christ. To the praise of his grace. You see, if you do... If you believe in Christ, if you see what is in Christ by faith, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not only did God the Father predestine you, not only did God the Son die for you and redeem you, but here the Holy Spirit himself endures your faith until you take full possession of it. And here we see even more the blessing of God's choosing love for us. How many of you have had tastes change in the course of your life? Fashion tastes, actual tastes, 
Maybe you were a weirdo who liked black licorice at some point and then you sobered up and realized it was terrible and now you don't like it. Those things happen all the time. And we don't lose any sleep over it, right? But if your relationship with God is based only off of your free ability to see, to assess, to consider, and then to choose, if it's based only off of your affinity and your familiarity with it, then what hope do you have that you will wake up tomorrow and still find this God is glorious? Or, for those of you who have loved ones suffering with dementia or Alzheimer's, what hope do you have for them? That their cognitive ability will remain faithful enough to freely choose to worship this God. The truth is, is that in this text, our hope is that God chooses us and seals our faith inside of us by his power through the Holy Spirit. Because God himself bears witness in your heart and you choose to believe as a response to that, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have God himself inside of you. You have hope holding on to hope. True believers will endure because you have the very nearness of God sealing you in continued enduring faith. Sarah and I had a miscarriage after our second child, and then we had another pregnancy that we thought was going to end in a miscarriage back to back, and one night we were talking about how trying those trials were in our life. And Sarah began to talk about how difficult it was to lose an unborn baby and to potentially lose another unborn baby. And she took that and extrapolated it out to our firstborn, who was four years old at the time, and said, how much more painful would it be to lose him? One that I knew not only in my womb for a small period of time, but has lived outside with us, related to us, held him, holded him, held him, kissed him to lose him. And I remember her saying as we were sitting there, she said, if something were to happen to Owen, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how it would affect my faith. I would hope that I would believe, but it would be hard. And this is where this truth of God's choosing love is a deep, deep blessing for us. To those who believe, to those who are able to look into Christ, you will believe, you will endure, you will have faith even when the very world around you begins to crumble because when you're at your very weakest, God has promised to not abandon you. To not save you without your faith, but to endure you and give you faith with your efforts, in your hardships. That he would not withdraw himself from you, but that with you and alongside of you, he will endure you when it seems that you can no longer endure. This is what Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, where Jesus says this in verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. The gospel of Jesus continues the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to carry you through life when life is at its hardest. What a beautiful, heavy weight to be able to imagine the worst that life could throw at you, but to know that I will believe to know that amongst the stakes and swords of church history, 
What stands as a firm and faithful professor of faith is not the might of the martyrs, but the sealing promise of his spirit that is ours. That God has drawn near to us in love through Jesus, and it is God and God alone who will hold us. And as this work is done in the shadows and troughs of life, we are reminded that one day, what seals us now is the guarantee of what will be ours forever. That one day, God will make all things new. That one day, our faith will be no more, for Christ will be before us forever and ever for all eternity. That is hope holding on to hope. And look again where this culminates in Ephesians 1, 14 who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Three times that phrase is repeated in this text by Paul. Three times it's attached to the work of Jesus in order that we might worship God the Father in greater truth. In verses 11 through 12, it looks back into eternity past and says, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verses 13 through 14, it looks forward into the new heavens and the new earth and the inheritance, which is ours, and says, to the praise of his glory. And in verses 3 through 4, it looks at what you have this very moment in the adoption and redemption, which is ours in Jesus, and it says, to the praise of his glory. Looking back, looking forward, looking here, Our life is to be wrapped around praise of the glory of God who has saved us. Paul's opening message to the church is clear. Why or how did God create you? He created you according to his will through Jesus Christ. And why did God create you? He created you to the praise of his glory. This is what you were made to experience. This is what we were meant to behold as we become transformed from one form of glory to another. This is what was meant to occupy our hearts and occupy all of our lives, as beautiful and as weighty as this may be. If you're a believer this week, what I want you to do is I want you to pray that God would open your eyes to what is in Christ. That this week we would strip away all of the peripheral things about Christianity that seem to drive our worship, our affinity for nature, our love for our family, all good gifts that God has given. But the greatest gift, the gift that God has given to us is the blessing that is in Christ. And so I pray this week as we begin to look at what it means to be the church that God would reveal to us, give us eyes of faith to see that which is in Christ so that we might live this week to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, no man, no mountain, no music can cause us to praise your glory. But it's only seeing what you have done through Jesus Christ that our hearts become captivated and our hands are set free to serve. And so as we close in worship today, Lord, I pray that the seat of our worship might be occupied by Jesus Christ. That we might be fully aware of the wonderful truths which are in Christ. That we were redeemed from all that had gone wrong. That we are chosen according to your mercy to be holy and blameless before you. 
and that we were sealed, that we might endure all things to the end for your glory and because of your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen.